This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So good evening, everyone. Welcome to Science at the Theater's Five Big Questions, brought to you by the friends of Berkeley Lab. My name is Jeff Miller, head of public affairs at the lab, and I will be your host for this evening. Now, we have something special planned. Uh, we're going to have a voting segment at the close of the five scientific presentations. Each will be 10 minutes each, and you can't see it, but we have a timer up here to make sure that that's the case. And there'll be a beeper at 10 minutes. Uh, We're going to ask you to consider, of all the questions you've heard, which is the one that you would like science to answer first? Okay, so you're gonna be able to text, to vote, or for those of you who prefer a paper ballot, you can do that as well. We'll have hand them out and collect them and tabulate them as, uh, as the, with the help of our volunteers. Now, there is no prize, sadly. We are a government institution. <laughs> but we think that the format will sort of stoke the fires, competitive fires of our scientists presenters and make for a very lively presentation. We hope you agree. Okay. So now to get the evening started, we are going to show our new Berkeley Lab video, which is short by design, a mere minute and 45 seconds. We hope that you enjoy it, and then I'll be back at the close of that to get the evening officially started. So please watch and listen and enjoy. Thank you. Is it possible to make fuels from sunlight? Can we stop breast cancer in its tracks? Save consumers billions of dollars in energy costs? At Berkeley Lab, finding answers to the toughest questions is why we come to work every day. Our science paved the way for medical imaging devices like MRI machines and PET scanners. We added 16 elements on the periodic table, helped develop energy-saving windows, discovered the accelerating universe, and won 13 Nobel Prizes. Scientists from around the globe use our powerful supercomputers to do everything from develop new materials to predict the Earth's climate. We're working to create affordable batteries that enable electric vehicles to go 300 miles on a single charge. Berkeley Lab scientists have even created a solar-powered vaccine refrigerator that could help save countless lives in the developing world. Public service has been part of our DNA for more than 80 years. As a Department of Energy National Laboratory, our science is open, ingenious, and humanitarian. It is done for you and belongs to you. The challenges now facing us in energy, health, and the environment won't wait. Neither will we. Our science, your science, will lead us to solutions we can't even imagine. Berkeley Lab, bringing science solutions to the world. So is there anything that you noticed about that video other than the wonderful narration by Peter Coyote? Uh, Did you notice that it started with questions? So can we make fuel from sunlight? Can we stop breast cancer in its tracks? This is not done by chance. Uh, Questions drive science. And questions that provoke other questions keep science fresh and alive. In fact, if you think about the root of the word question, quest, it's really about a journey. It's about momentum. It's about a zest for answers that scientists have and need to keep 
propelling their research forward. So what are the objectives of all these questions? Well, sometimes it's just simple understanding. Sometimes it's a new technology. Sometimes it's just pure curiosity. But the point is that the questions never stop, and neither do we. At Berkeley Lab, questions are the brain food that fuel our discoveries that we think are in the public interest. Now, sometimes the questions seem a little esoteric. I mean, you might have looked at the program tonight and said, what is that? What is that? What's the relevance of that? Well, it's up to us to convince you otherwise. Thankfully, that's not going to be my task tonight. That's going to be up to our scientist presenters, who include Judy Campisi, who's going to be talking about age-related diseases, Kai Vetter, who's going to be talking about radiation, Javier Navarro talking about insects and why we should care, and we really should, and Almgren. It's going to be kind of a math thing, but math like you haven't heard it before, which you really like. Trust me. We, we know this to be true. And last, Shashi Bulaswar, who will be talking about sustainable urban food production and the consequences for a city like Oakland. So with that, please give a warm welcome to our first presenter, Judy Campisi, who is going to be answering the question, answering the question, what causes age-related disease? No, you are. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Welcome, everyone. So let me start with a a question to the audience. How many of you would like to live to be a ripe old age? Oh, good. Okay. So so this is what you have to look forward to. (laughs) So this is obviously a partial list of the many, many diseases that afflict us as we get older. And we are always surprised when you think about these diseases, something that affects your brain, something that affects your brain, something that affects your bones, your eyes. All of these diseases have one thing in common, very rare in young people. And then about halfway through our lifespan, so 50 or 60 years in the case of humans, all of these diseases rise with very, very, very sharp kinetics. So there are two possibilities. One is that this is bad luck. All these different diseases, different tissues, different uh, manifestations, just by chance, happen to come up at the same time. But the other possibility is that it's not a coincidence, that there are basic aging processes. There's something about aging that's driving these diseases. Now, if we're right, think about it. This will revolutionize modern medicine because now there won't be a cardiologist looking at your heart and an eye doctor looking at your eyes and and a bone doctor looking at your bones. Now we will be training doctors to treat aging, and that will simultaneously treat many of these diseases. So this is a dream. We're not there yet, but this is a dream. And what I'm going to tell you about today is the progress that we've made, a little bit of progress, in identifying these basic aging processes and then hopefully developing interventions. By the way, we can do it in mice. We can't do it in people yet, but we're getting there. So how do you go about identifying something that can drive all these very, very different diseases? And I'll show you one example of how we did it. So we looked at all these diseases and we realized something striking. Most of these diseases are degenerative, and by that I mean things don't work very well. So your eyesight doesn't work very well, your bones get frail, your muscles get frail. But there's one disease that follows the same trajectory 
rare in young people, comes up at about the midpoint of the lifespan with very sharp kinetics, that's different. And that's this disease here, cancer. It's very difficult, would be very difficult for me to call cancer a degenerative disease. In order for a cancer cell to form a tumor that will cause lethality, that will kill you, that cancer cell has to acquire new functions. So think about it. It's like most of these diseases are loss of function diseases. And then there's this one disease which we call a gain of function disease. It has to acquire something new. And we thought this is a good thing because what it can do is simplify the question. Now we can ask, what does cancer have in common with an aging brain or an aging bone or an aging muscle? So we found an answer, or at least a partial answer. And that answer comes from knowing what we know about cancer due to many, many decades of cancer research. We know now that there are two things that are needed to form a tumor that is lethal. So one is mutations. These are not mutations you were born with. These are mutations that you acquire as an adult or even as a young person, and those are cells within your body that have picked up mutations, mostly from breathing oxygen, which is toxic. And as a consequence, the DNA is damaged, and it's changed, and you have a mutation. We also know that those mutations begin very, very early. We can detect them even in embryos. So now you can ask the question, well, why don't we get cancer more often than we do? And the answer is because we have encoded in our genome hundreds of genes that qualify for being termed tumor suppressor genes. And they converge on a few basic mechanisms that help keep cancer at a low level at least for half of our lifespan. And those two tumor suppressor mechanisms are a process called apoptosis or cell death. Very clear, a dead cell can't form a tumor. So a cell senses this mutation and dies. The other process is a process called cellular senescence. Cells stop proliferating forever. Also, really simple, a cell that can't divide can't form a tumor. So we think this process, the senescence process, is more important. And the reason is we know that senescent cells accumulate exponentially with the same trajectory of those diseases with age. So everyone here, if you're young, you have few senescent cells. If you're middle-aged, you have more. And if you're old, you have a lot more. The other reason why we think senescence is more important is we see it at virtually every age-related disease we've examined. So that's everything from macular degeneration, which causes blindness, the COPD, which causes lung problems in the elderly, heart disease, and we even see it in precancerous lesions. So these cells are a smoking gun, right? They're present at the right time and the right place to be driving multiple age-related diseases. The question is, how do they do it? And they do it because they're secreting molecules outside of themselves. So here's a cell that doesn't divide. It's not doing anything, but it's secreting stuff. And that stuff that it secretes causes a process called inflammation. And it's inflammation that is the key 
to understanding every one of those diseases I put on the first slide. So all of those diseases are either caused by or greatly exacerbated by a process called inflammation. And what inflammation does is it destroys tissues. It makes tissues not function well. It prevents stem cells from behaving properly. And it even promotes cancer. So this is the glue. So here's the model. You have a young tissue, and with age, we accumulate senescent cells. We've proven that in the laboratory. These cells produce molecules that they, produ that they secrete outside of themselves, and it causes neighboring cells to fail to function. And of course, what I told you is that with age, we're also accumulating these mutant cells, and we believe that these secretions can then even drive the progression of late-life cancers. So <laughs> I'm going to cheer you up. All right. So what do we do about this? So what most scientists are doing now are thinking about two strategies. So one is stop the secretion. So if we can prevent these cells from secreting stuff, maybe we can suppress this driver of aging. And the other is to simply find a way to get these cells, instead of sticking around, get them to die. And both progress is being made on both of them. We actually very much favor this last approach, and I'll show you why. Um, here are two mice. Now, these are not normal mice. They're mutant. They have a premature aging disease. So we're doing the experiment now in naturally aged mice, but these are prematurely aging mice. They're littermates. And both of them have the mutation that caused them to age prematurely. So mice normally live two and a half to three years. These mice live only eight or nine months. They're about eight and a half months now. So this, these mice accumulate senescent cells at a very high rate, much faster than normal mice. And we can, we can do a genetic trick. So this is only done in uh, transgenic, genetically engineered mice. That's why we can't do it in people yet. But we can get those senescent cells to die. So here's a prematurely aged mouse. It's going to die within half a year or so, or ha uh, yeah, half a year, or so, half, uh, half a month or so. It has cataracts. It has weak muscles, poor bones, and almost no subcutaneous fat. Here's the same mouse. All the senescent cells are gone. No cataracts, no muscle mass loss, no weak bones, lots of subcutaneous fat. Now, these mice died at the same time. So no increase in lifespan, but obviously an increase in health span. This mouse died much healthier, much happier, we think, as much as we can tell that about mice. So the promise of aging research really, and what is our main challenge, is to translate these findings in mice to people. And um, what we want to do is find ways to eliminate senescent cells in people, provide new stem cells, reduce this inflammation, and maybe even engineer new organs and tissues, all of these on the horizon. What we really want, because we're not sure we can extend lifespan, is to slow down aging. And I will leave you with a quote from Thurgood Marshall. How many of you know who Thurgood Marshall is? Yeah, he's first black Supreme Court justice uh, in an era which was uh, slightly less enlightened than our current era. Someone, so these are lifetime appointments, right? So someone had the nerve to ask him, how long do you plan to live? OK, here's my punchline. 
His reply was beautiful. He said, I plan to live until 110 and then to die from a bullet wound from a jealous husband. <laughs> Thank you, Judy. Our next presenter will be Kai Vetter, who will be discussing radiation, something we all need to know more about. All right, sir. Please welcome Kai. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, Kai Vetter, I'm a physicist. As a matter of fact, I'm a nuclear physicist. So we deal with radiation all the time, me, my students, and my scientists. So we're exposed to and volunteer to work with radiation. So we know quite a bit about radiation. Um, so that's why the first question is not really serious. I mean, it's more addressing uh, um, and maybe some questions you might have about how can we see radiation, because we believe we can see radiation very well with our sensors and our detectors we develop and improve all the time. What is so really is a scientific question. Uh, we're also not able to answer fully is how harmful is radiation, particularly at low dose when you have a small amount of radiation over time. What is the effect? So this is really the scientific question. We need to answer, we're trying to answer. Now, when we talk about radiation, of course, we cannot uh, uh, ignore what happened more than four years ago now in Fukushima in Japan. As a result of the northeastern earthquake, enormous earthquake resulting in tsunami, and then uh, taking down uh, three of the four uh, reactors at the Daiichi nuclear power plant in Fukushima, um, leading to explosion, core meltdown, and to significant releases of radioactive material into the atmosphere, into the local environment, into the atmosphere. Enormous impact uh, socially, politically, economically, locally, predominantly, but also globally. I mean, politically, as we all know, in, has enormous impact uh, due to Fukushima. The question is, what really happened in terms of the health impact due to the radiation? And the answer is, well, I will get to that uh, in, a, in a second at the end. Um, but before I do that, a few words to explain what radiation we are talking about here. Um, because we are talking about nuclear radiation, that means radiation which is uh, originated from the atomic nucleus. And because the atomic nucleus is a strongly bound entity, also the, the radiation emitted is high energy. That means if you now plot the electromagnetic spectrum, um, capturing the different types of waves we are exposed to naturally or electively, we go from radio waves, long wavelengths, low energy, uh, to uh, visual light, of course, the, uh, which we can sense very well. Of course, that's what our eyes are for. Uh, also, infrared, we can sense, so we can actually feel it um, by, the, by the heat. And then we go up in energy to the X-rays and then ultimately to gamma rays. And one of the challenges there, of course, is for, for us that we are not able to feel it. So we don't really understand what is our environment and what will be the impact of the radiation, the nuclear radiation around us. Specifically, we are talking about ionizing radiation. So radiation that is able to ionize uh, atoms or molecules. That means it can remove or knock out electrons out of the orbitals of, of our atoms or molecules. So the, the, the interaction is quite different than the interaction to do this radiation which we have to be aware of. Therefore, also, in terms of the effects, might be a little different than the effects here. On the other hand, in terms of detection, that might be very helpful to actually help uh, to use the ionizing, the, the characteristic of the ionizing radiation to detect. Now, one word about radioactivity and radiation, um, just to, for clarification. So radioactivity fundamentally just means 
the transformation of a nucleus from an unstable uh, um, configuration to a more stable configuration. So unstable to stable, and it can, in, to, to go to the more stable configuration, it admits radiation. And, and Ernest Rutherford, already in 1908, so more than 100 years ago, recognized that there are two, three different types of radiation, alpha decay or alpha radiation, beta decay and beta uh, uh, radiation, and gamma radiation. And they're all a little different, uh, and they do uh, interactively, therefore can be also stopped and attenuated differently. Alpha particle, sheet of paper, beta particle, you'd need just your hand or a piece of aluminum. Gamma rays are very penetrating. So if you want to probe and detect some uh, uh, nuclear material in your environment, gamma radiation might be useful because it allows you to detect it in some distance, for example. And then we have neutrons, which I'll not talk about. So that's about radioactivity. Again, the fact that, we can, that, uh, that uh, nuclei are not stable, they emit radiation, and we can characterize a different type of radiation. Now, what about the world we're living in? Okay, so what is normal in the world in terms of radiation, specifically nuclear radiation, uh, alpha, beta, or gamma radiation? So what is shown here is a pie chart reflecting the different sources of, of radiation we're exposed to in the United States on average, on a daily basis, pretty much. What is interesting is that half of the radiation we're exposed to is due to natural sources, particular what we call primordial sources. That means uranium, thorium, potassium, which have been created maybe billions of years ago in, uh, nopa, in supernova react, uh, uh, reaction, supernova events, uh, creating the heaviest elements. And their half-life, that means they live for a long time until they decay and emit some radiation. So they have been with us for billions of years, and they will be with us for billions of years. So this is about half of the radiation we expose. Now the other half is medical. Uh, and that really has changed over the last 10 years. Uh, medical procedures, specifically if you look at computer tomography. So enhanced uh, quite a bit uh, more use over the last 10 years, 15 years, uh, now 24%. But overall, medical is about half of the total exposure. So not that we really care too much about units and numbers, but it's, uh, it's whatever number, 6.3 millisieverts. So that's per year. That's the dose rate for a US citizen in average. Now, if you go to other places in the world, particularly in India and Iran, uh, Ramza, for example, Iran, it goes up to 250 millisieverts. So a factor of 50 uh, um, or so, a factor of 40 higher than we are exposed to on average. So 40, a factor of 40 higher. That's interesting. Also, uh, some more elective exposures. And I always mention with my students, I mean, what is interesting, that we all are radioactive. We have also potassium. We have carbon-14 in us. That means if you're close to another person, we will be exposed from the radioactivity from the other person. And as a matter of fact, you can measure it, how much it is, which is whatever 0.01 in whatever strange units. But you can measure it. And what is most important, it's not zero. Okay? In our universe, zero radiation is not possible. Okay? There's everywhere, in our, in, at least in our universe. Has been in the past and will be in the future. Also, what is really Im important, radiation and ultimately biological effects do not care where it's coming from, whether it's from the natural source or a non-natural source. Okay? It does not matter. Gamma ray is a gamma ray, beta gamma ray is a beta, gamma, uh, beta ray. For example, uh, bismuth-214, which is uh, natural occurring, is very similar uh, to the man-made cesium-134, uh, uh, cesium-137, which is the signature for Fukushima. So at the end, the effect will be very similar. The, we don't care about the origin. So that's really 
two important messages we have to recognize. We have to, nothing else, that's the takeaway message. Okay. Now, how can we see and measure radiation? Okay, that's one, of course, the first question. Now, if you look at visual light, uh, uh, and, 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 and we, can, we have our eyes, which are extremely sensitive uh, detectors and sensors. Right? We can measure the intensity, how many photons, so like the brightness. We can measure even the energy, that means what color. And we can, of course, image it. We can localize the source of whatever, uh, of, of, of the object. Extremely powerful. Now, for our uh, radiation, gamma radiation detector, we can do very similar things. We can uh, count the number of gamma rays. We can measure the energy of the gamma ray, which is, which is a very important and powerful tool because that allows us to distinguish the different types of radiation and their sources, different radi uh, radioisotopes. For example, whether it's cesium-134, cesium-137, or bismuth. So this allows us to distinguish about the origin or the fingerprint of, uh, of the sources. And we can also image. Our radiation detectors can be even built more sensitive than our human eye. Because a human eye at least takes about 30 photons in 30 milliseconds to actually see it. Like in, in, in for, our gamma, for our detectors, we only need one particle. They can count each particle individually. So sensitivity is enormous, which is really a big advantage of our detectors. So we can see extremely small amounts of radiation, like single uh, rays or single particles we can see. So the in, also they can be detected before they are harmful uh, at all. So that's a very uh, imp also important message. So just that I'm not just talking sitting here in California, so I'm spending a lot of time in Fukushima trying to help to do better measurements and also help in some of the uh, issues related to the communication about trust. So I've been four times to Fukushima last year. So that was the third anniversary. I was in Fukushima City, and I had my radiation dosimeter. Again, that's my radiation detector, which I have always with me, uh, and checking on the flight to see really how the radiation goes up and down I mean, on the airplane. <laughs> and this is in Fukushima City one year ago. It's 0.2 microsievert per hour, whatever that means. If you now add that over the year, it's two. So it's really the average of the United States. So if you go closer to the site, we go up to, to 80 millisievert per year. Okay, so it is much higher, but it's still not really that much higher than some areas in the world, right next to the Daiichi nuclear power plant. So this is what we can do with a simple dosimeter, a Geiger counter. Well, that's just a counter. Now, if we really want to understand where the radiation is coming from, we have, to do, we have to be able to resolve all these different peaks and lines here, because that's what we measure and what we have measured in Berkeley. One week after the releases, um, we are able to measure that with quite sophisticated instruments. Again, you can see the colored ones, that's really what we can associate with the radiation from Fukushima, and the blue ones, the black, the, 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 the black names here, is just natural radiation. So having this device will not tell you where the radiation is coming from. You need this type of a device, which tells you really the, the individual energy which is, can you associate with Fukushima or not. So this is not good enough. Okay, going briefly back to Fukushima. And, and uh, so what have we done in Berkeley? So when it was clear there was some major releases in, of radiation, we set up our own measurements to look at air, uh, water, rainwater, and many food samples. And we continue to do that in our redwatch.berkeley.edu uh, website. You can find a lot of information about that. So we set out to do the measurements, but also then to make that measurement, these measurements to, available to the public right away and engage the public in the dialogue to try 
not only to, to show the results, but also put the results into a context so that the public could understand that. Um, so we were able to see the increase of, for example, iodine-131 in water, and then the decline. The same with cesium in local milk, up, and then the decline. What is important on all these plots is kind of the reference. So this is 0.5 whatever units here is the maximum number we've ever measured in cesium-137 in milk. Like if you look at milk, we have potassium-40, naturally. It's 50. So 50. So it's up there relative to what we have been able to measure. Yes, we are able to see it, but it's orders of magnitude less than we're normally exposed to. If you just drink milk, and obviously you want to drink milk. We have done that for in the past, and we'll certainly should do that in the future and not stop it because of the potassium-40. Um, okay, so now the question, though, is it harmful? Well, this is really a scientific question. And the answer is, well, it depends, obviously, if you're a scientist. Always the answer is it depends. That's what my wife is always complaining about when I answer. Um, at high dose, we know, yes. It's like with anything. At high dose, particular high dose rate, anything, is, everything is pretty much harmful. And can potentially, but what happened at low dose? So we are not sure, but we know that the risk to get cancer, the long-term effect, is really small. But we don't really know exactly what, what, what's going on at low radiation dose because the problem is that we have insufficient data. Now, the reason we, we, it's very difficult to, to uh, study low-dose effects is, of course, the normal cancer rate, the, just the cancer incident rate in, for humans. Right? It's not zero. It's actually 30 to 40 percent in, in the United States. And we are not able to distinguish the cost for cancer, whether it's radiation-induced or has some other reasons. So that prevents us to do that, uh, these studies in more, uh, more quantitatively. Now, what the regulators do, and that's really the confusing, confusing part, it assumes the, the most conservative approach, which we call the linear no-threshold model. That means from the high-dose effect, which is linear, they just extrapolate down to zero. And no, do not consider any effect in terms of time or duration, number of type of the subject opposed, or any, do not assume any repair or response or adaption or stimulation process in organism, which we know nature normally does. But we are not able to, to measure, to, to um, Determine that, therefore, uh, we use the most conservative uh, approach, which is a, a, a big problem. And for us, this is really something we have to, we have to improve to better understand low-dose effects. Now, going back to uh, four years later, uh, 85,000 people are still evacuated in Fukushima. And certainly, they want to go back. But there are a lot of issues related to transport over the next 20 years out of the environment into the evacuated areas. Now, what is really the health effect? And the international agencies and commissions agree on that. The main effect is not radiation. It's psychologically, the stress, uncertainty due to the lack of information knowledge, the fear of radiation, change in lifestyle. People have to move. They are not allowed to go outside and exercise. So the, the change in lifestyle was tremendous, and therefore the impact was tremendous. Very likely that no death can be attributed to the radiation due to Fukushima. Very important message. Very no death can be attributed to the radiation from Fukushima. However, there are more than 1,500 deaths associated with the evacuation and the change in lifestyle, which is significant. Of course, now the question is, what would have happened if the, these people, hundreds of thousands of people, would not have been evacuated? Let's leave them there. Get them exposure up to 70 millisievert per year. Again, other areas actually are able, uh, living in that environment. And in the end, the answer is, well, we don't know. 
Right? We don't really have the scientific data yet to determine what would have happened to these people when they would have stayed there. They certainly would have be more happy in terms of their environment. They had stayed in the environment and they were um, okay, exercising and, and not change their lifestyle so much. So in order to address the outstanding issues, so what we have formed now is an institute for resilient communities that captures a lot of the research necessary from the assessment to the prediction to health impact and remediation. And, but coupling that into the context of education, outreach, and the public communities. And we're doing that by working with communities in Japan so the mayor of Korema City, the largest city of Fukushima, was visiting Berkeley two weeks ago, and he spent the whole week with us to discuss how we can help them in terms of doing the work, the technology development, the demonstration science, but also to establish this institute there as a trusted resource. So that's what we're trying to do, to establish an entity, this institute over in Japan as well, to help them to ultimately go back uh, to their homes and, 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 and live safe in the future. And that's pretty much it. Thank you. We actually have six questions since Kai used an extra 10 minutes, but that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, that's okay. So uh, we now move from radiation to insects. And Javier Navarro, please give him a warm welcome. Okay, so there it is. Uh, again, my name is Javier Ceja Navarro, and I am a chemical engineer working with insects at the Berkeley Lab. One of the main questions driving my research at the Berkeley Lab is, do insects contain the secrets for food and energy production, for a sustainable production of food and energy? To be honest, I didn't really care about insects and about their beauty before. And then everything changed when I came to work at the Berkeley Lab with this amazing system. I caught the bug, okay? <laughs> so after this presentation, I hope that you will get a little bit of an insight of our research, but also that, that uh, you will get to change your view about these amazing creatures. Have you ever considered that insects are everywhere? They feed on all kinds of food. They are in all kinds of environment from the desert to the tundra, soil, water, plants, even on animals, including humans. Just look at that uh, beautiful loss hanging there in the hair of a human. So what's the underlying reason behind this versatility of insects? What is giving them the ability to adapt and to survive to pretty much all kinds of environments? Let me tell you a little bit about it. Insects represent 56% of all living organisms in our planet. Okay? They are the most diverse group of organisms as well, and there are estimations that we have around 10 quintillions of insects alive at any point in our planet. That's at 10 with 18 zeros. Okay? So usually when we think about insects, we will think about a pest. Okay? <laughs> and immediately we will get the image of a roach in our mind. Yeah, some of them are destructive. They can attack crops or even spread diseases. But most insects are harmless. Okay? They can provide a lot more to an environment and to humans, and we forget about that. For example, we can get a lot of products from, natural products from insects, including walks, for example, silk, 
honey. They are also models for scientific research. We can study genetics or even study animal behavior. They are also agents of pest control and pollinators. In fact, without the activity of these pollinators, many plants would disappear from our planet. And with them, also the animals that depend on them. Also, something important about insects is that they are ancient creatures. Okay? They appeared on our planet 300 million years ago, just 100 million years after plants. And we humans, well, we, we came here 250,000 years ago. That's nothing. So who do you think, or which multicellular organism do you think has developed better strategies to live in this planet, to interact with the planet? Insects had millions of years to create strategies to interact with plants, with other microbes. And while doing this, they were able to incorporate some of these microorganisms to the digestive system. There, while giving them this really nice environment in their gut, they will get the benefit of all these microbes and their abilities to transform all kinds of substances. So could we benefit by studying the perfected biology of insects? Let me tell you about the systems that we are studying at the Berkeley Lab. One of them is soil microcreatures from a soil that has really low content of carbon, nitrogen, and phosphorus is in a form that is not available for plants. Soil microcreatures and other soil, uh, soil animals, they move through the soil, they modify their structure, they allow air to go through the soil, nutrients, and water. But how about the microbes that are associated with these little animals? Could they be also contributing to the cycling of carbon, nitrogen, and making this phosphorus available? My other system is the pasalid beetle. This is an amazing creature. Okay? These are subsocial insects. They have no hierarchy. They are all the same. They have really strong family bonds, and they interact by making sounds or chemical signals. Something that is really important about these creatures is that they can degrade wood. They are really good at physically and chemically transforming wood. In less than one year, five of these little creatures would transform five kilograms of wood. So that's a lot of material. And while doing this, they are decomposing the wood, its polymers, including lignin, which is really hard to transform. And during that process, they will get all the energy they need to survive, to live. So could we harness this potential and maybe learn about it and use it for our benefit? My third system is a coffee pest. It's known as the coffee berry border. This little organism that I'm showing you here evolved together with coffee plants to the point of making coffee seeds its only source of food and shelter. Okay, so then when coffee got out of Africa, of course, did the coffee berry border. It was following the plant. It's, it's, it's home. But the amazing thing about this creature is that while living in the coffee seed, it exposes itself to toxic levels of caffeine. And just to give you an idea, the caffeine needed to kill a human is 0 0.075 milligrams per gram of body mass. That would be like 50 shots of espresso for a guy of 150 pounds, maybe. So this little insect lives in an environment that has 100 times or a little bit more caffeine than they're requiring to kill a human. How is this guy doing this? 
Could we use this ability maybe to control it better? Okay. The Berkeley Lab is a unique space, a unique place where multidisciplinary research gets combined to study, well, all kinds of uh, problems, health, environment. And at the Earth Sciences Division and the Ecology Department, we have a set of experts that uh, apply omic, omics approaches, such as DNA sequencing, RNA sequencing, or even the application of different analytical techniques to study the environment being soil, water, plants, and now also insects and their associated microbes. For example, here, what we did with some of these insects was to extract their DNA, their proteins, do sequencing, and identify all the different organisms living inside of the insect. But not only this, we were able also to elucidate the steps that occur in the insects for the transformation of different substances. For example, here, for the pasalid beetle, this is an image of what uh, his uh, digestive system would be. Okay? Once the wood enters to the beetle, it will go to the midgut. There, the polymers of wood will get transformed into simple molecules that then go to the anterior hindgut where fermentation occurs. All the energy is then produced. And then you have an extra step of, for degradation, for whatever went through. Okay? Another thing that we do at the Berkeley Lab is to analyze the gut environment, the digestive system. How is this environment? How are these bacteria um, living in this uh, uh, internal environment? We require this if we want to reproduce this outside of the laboratory. Uh, for this, we are using different approaches, as I told you, like uh, microelectrodes to measure the oxygen in the animals, or even uh, CT scanning, like what I have in here. And with this, what we want to do is to understand how the gut is arranged inside of the little creatures. How is this uh, little refinery arranged in the animal? Once we understand this, once we understand the environment, we know what these uh, different organisms are doing inside of the insect, we can try to take, them, to take them out. Here, for example, you can see several microbiology plates with caffeine, cellulose, and lignin. And the dots that you see in there are bacteria and other organisms that are able to survive using only these substances that maybe we could use later for other approaches or for other applications. Okay, so what have we learned so far? From the soil microanimals, we know that they participate in the recycling of nutrients. So could we use this knowledge to generate new soil management strategies? About the coffee insect, we know that this little creature survives in coffee because of its bacteria. So how about we target that bacteria to change the preference of the insect for the coffee seed and maybe it moves out a little bit to the fruit so it doesn't really affect coffee production? Could we use this idea of targeting bacteria to control other uh, agricultural pests? About the pasalid beetle. Here we have an amazing biorefinery. How about we mimic nature and we learn about the processes and then we create new approaches to produce energy? Humans, well, we have become really uh, good at reproducing and living longer. And while doing this, we are exploding our environment without really taking care of doing this with a balance, with sustainability. And this will take us to the point of being unable to provide the resources for future generations. You know, at this point, 
Well, we are able to travel to space, to analyze genomes, to analyze huge amounts of data. How about we start paying attention to our environment, to its creatures? The key for a sustainable existence in this planet may be out there. We just need to learn from nature. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Javier. What you did not know is that Javier deserves a second round of applause because he is responsible for the drawings in his presentation. So next up is our little math moment. Uh, I think there's only one equation in there, which is sort of irrelevant, right, Anne? No. Well, no. Okay. I'll let Anne explain it. It's about, do we need math to blow up a star? Please. So Javier is a very hard act to follow, so I'm going to answer this question, then you don't have to vote for it, and I won't feel bad. So the answer is, yes, we need math. And so what I want to do is spend the next 10 minutes convincing you guys, oh, he didn't start my clock, I get extra time. Okay. So what I want to convince you is that we have microscopes, we have telescopes, we have computers, we have detectors, yet we still need math. And yes, this is the math that you learned in elementary school and high school and dot, 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 and I want to try and convince you that it's important. Okay. Math in the context of a supernova. Since Jeff got to talk about the origin of a word, I get to talk about the origin of a word. So supernova is super plus nova. Nova meant new star. We looked up in the sky. There's something bright there we didn't see before. Aha, it's a new star. It's a nova. Well, then there's one that's even brighter. It's a supernova. And you don't actually have to travel that far out in space to see one. In fact, does anybody recognize where this is? Okay. <laughs> so there is, or well, excuse me, there was a supernova in Oakland. This is the, if you are getting on 580, from, uh, I think you're on Lake Park, Passing Grand, there was a billboard up there. And if you know scientists, we all love to get published. We want to see our names in print. But seeing your picture on a billboard is way cooler. This picture up here is of a supernova. It's before an explosion. And it was made with a code that we wrote at Berkeley Lab. So that's the supernova in Oakland. Uh, unfortunately, they took it down. <laughs> so this is what one usually thinks of as a supernova. And this is in a galaxy far, far away. In fact, about 60 million light years away. And this picture, it's a classic picture. If you go on Google, you will see that everyone puts up this picture of a supernova. It's SN1994D, so you can guess what year it was discovered. And the three things you need to know. So one is we don't see them usually by looking up in the sky. This one's actually an image through the Hubble telescope. Two is, and I don't have a pointer, if you look in the middle of the picture, that's a galaxy. A galaxy is many, many, many stars. You look at the bottom left, that is one star. So a supernova has the ability during its lifetime to be as bright as an entire galaxy. So that's a pretty amazing thing. And then the third thing about them is they're only visible for several weeks, kind of like my billboard. Okay. <laughs> so why do I care? And I have to say that Kai stole a little bit of the thunder because he used the word supernova. And if you remember what he said about them, he said, that's where all the heavy elements came from. So in the Big Bang, in the beginning, we had hydrogen, we had helium. We didn't have all these other elements that we have that Berkeley Lab discovered some of. And so all of these other elements came from supernovae. So if you ever hear the expression, you're made of stardust, it's real. That's what we're all made of. So here is a brief history as to why you should care about supernovae. So if we look back 1915, 100 years ago, Einstein said the universe is stationary. Oh, he used the word universe, too. You killed all my, uh, all my, aren't you? So the universe is stationary. The universe is space. It's the stuff that surrounds us. 
It's not getting bigger, it's not getting smaller. That seems pretty reasonable. We're here, we've been here, we're going to be here. Well, Hubble came along, he had some telescopes. He observed galaxies, and he observed that all galaxies are getting farther and farther away from all other galaxies. And there's only one way for that to happen. It's not just that something's leaving me, but I'm getting closer to something else. Everything's getting farther away, and the only way that happens is if the universe itself is expanding. So we started the Big Bang. We're getting bigger. This sounds great. Okay. Einstein actually admitted he'd been wrong, which I, I love because everyone thinks Einstein is the god. He was a really, really smart guy. He was wrong. He admitted it. We move on. That is a great way to do science. Okay, so now, looking at more galaxies, one of the things they noticed, you can look at the rotation rate. So galaxies spin. They don't just sit there. And just the same way, if you look at the Earth going around the sun, if you know how far it is from the sun and you know how fast it's going around the sun, you can find, you can calculate the mass of the sun. Same thing with the galaxies. Galaxies spin. They rotate around other things. If you look at how fast they are, how far away they are, you can figure out how much mass is in the middle. And the problem is that there's a lot more mass in the middle than we can account for by adding up all the things that we can see. So what that tells us is there's a whole lot of mass out there. There's a whole lot of matter. So mass is matter. Dark means we don't know what it is. Okay, that was the first thing I learned was, what, what is, what's the secret? What's dark matter? Dark is, we don't know. Okay, so now if you like to worry, and I come from a family of worriers, you say, wait a minute, mass is gravitationally attracted. Mass always attracts. If there's a whole lot of mass, maybe it's going to suck the universe back in. We started in the Big Bang. We're headed for the Big Crunch. So if you want to stay up at night, you can worry about it for about two seconds until I tell you, no, you don't need to worry. You can go home and sleep tonight. So 1998, science breakthrough of the year. This is actually Science Magazine. This was on the cover. You can see the expanding bubble that Einstein's blowing out of his pipe. How did they figure this out? They said, well, we've observed a bunch of type 1a supernovae. We're going to make some assumptions about how they behave, and we are going to conclude that the rate of the universe expanding is increasing. So not only is the universe getting bigger, it's getting bigger faster and faster. Okay, so now you can sleep at night. This is good. I haven't said math yet, so, so what's going on here? So it's this middle part that bothers me. Now, I have to tell you, I'm a computational scientist. I'm not an astrophysicist. So everything that I've told you I had to learn not that long ago, and I said, well, these scientists, they must know what they're talking about. Well, whenever you see the word assumptions, you say, okay, what do they assume? We'll talk about that. So let's talk about how do we know what supernovae do. If we're going to make these assumptions about how they blow up, how do we do that? Okay, so you observe them. Well, you observe them. Here's the Hubble telescope. We talked about that. And what you see is only the light from the supernova that hits the Earth. It's the observables. It's what you can observe. This picture... <laughs> On the left, you can see a, a star that is, is dark, and then it gets bright, and then it gets dark again. Upper corner is just tracing out how bright it is, and then the lower part is telling that we actually measure in different colors. We don't just measure white light. We measure in different colors. That's what you observe. So how do you study a supernova? You can't get up close and personal. You can't send a probe into a supernova. And this is the three pillars of science, or the three rings, kind of Olympic-looking. Experimental slash observational, theoretical, think pencil and paper, computational. So we have computers. This is great. I still haven't said math. So here's the point. We're going to use computation. Okay, so we have computers. End of story. And here's where it comes in. What's a star? Okay, we've got to put a star on a computer, and a star is a fluid. Okay, 
Water is a fluid. Air is a fluid. So we can use the equations of fluid dynamics to model a star. OK, this is great. Whoops. Fluid dynamics describes three things. It tells you how the fluid moves. It tells you you pour the glass of water. Water goes from the glass onto the floor, if I'm pouring. Tells you nuclear burning. This is how elements become other elements. That's how hydrogen and helium became all these other things, how carbon and oxygen became magnesium. And fluid dynamics tells you sound waves. So sound waves are the reason that you can hear me now. If there were no sound waves traveling in the air from me to you, you would not hear me. The equations of fluid dynamics do all three of these things. So we have a supercomputer. I think we even have one of these pictures. These are supercomputers that are actually at Berkeley Lab. If you put these all in a supercomputer, and you use all the processes you've got and all the best techniques you've got, you can model an explosion for about two seconds. And that's just the explosion itself. And the problem is, if you ever study fires, like house fires, forest fires, any kind of fire, the outcome of the fire often depends on where it started, where and how. In the two seconds, you can't get there. So we need about two hours. And it turns out that those equations I showed you we can't do it. We can't use those equations and do more than about two seconds. So finally, I get to my punchline. We need math. Okay? We want to figure out how the supernova starts, which is going to tell me how it blows up, which is going to tell me whether it really is the same as all the other supernovae. We need math. And it turns out, and this is the part I'm skipping over, if you take out the sound waves, it's, you can solve it a lot faster. And the point is, if I were holding a match up here, and somebody asked a question, it doesn't change the burning of the match. We can neglect the sound waves. And so we use our math, dot, 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 to say, let's come up with some equations that don't have sound waves. And you guys had probably already figured out that this is what they would look like. So this is what they would look like. <laughs> and it turns out that computationally, we can solve these a lot faster. We know how to do that. And so now we can do the full two hours. And let me just see if I can get the movie to start again. So here. We have, this is the nucleosynthesis in an exploding star. This one happens to have ignited at the very center. Not all of them do. And so I'm a computational scientist. I love this. I love that we made progress. I won't say solve, but we made progress on the supernova problem. But what's really fun for me is we can use those same ideas. We can use those same mathematical techniques, those same ideas, and actually those same computational skills. This is cloud formation. This is rising air. It's moist air. This is liquid water. We just made a cloud. We can use the same techniques to model a burner in a laboratory. So we have colleagues in a different building. They actually burn things. We put it on a computer. We match it up. And it's surprising what we learn. And that, to me, is the power of math. Thank you. I am a believer. I'm a believer. And she did that under 10 minutes. Next round of applause. Okay, our next and last presenter. This is going to be a tough vote, I think. Uh, Shashi Bouliswar talking to you about sustainable urban food production. Next question. Please welcome Shashi. Since the dawn of the agricultural revolution, food has been produced a particular way. And the way it has been produced is that it's in rural areas. And if you think about how forests grow and evolve and die, essentially they operate on their own cycle. They don't need any intervention from us. We've changed that around in our food production systems. What we do is we suck more out of the earth than the, than the earth is capable of giving. We pump 
fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, and so on and so forth. And as a result, we've devastated the planet. This question was not relevant a few years back. Nobody cared about sustainable urban food production. And we'll see why it's more relevant today than it was. And then we'll see whether or not it's possible. And sustainable means a number of things. It has to obviously work for the environment. It also has to work financially. What we'll see is that the reason urban food production doesn't work today is that it is too expensive to be financially sustainable. So behold the mighty tomato. Why should we behold the mighty tomato? It is, if you think of what it does for us, it is almost the perfect food. So if you think about how much actual caloric food we, uh, value we get out of it and how much nutrition we get out of it, it is right there in the top corner. Compared to, for instance, if we, nuts, very nutritious, but you have to eat a lot of nuts to fill yourself. And then, of course, you have chicken McNuggets, <laughs> other wonderful things that our food, food production systems have given us, right? which fill us up but are not very nutrient-rich. Now, um, how, what, does that, what does that have to do with urban systems? In a city like Oakland, um, one of the things we see is that the poor don't have access to good food. And the way that manifests itself in what people eat is this. So if this is essentially what uh, low-income people eat versus higher-income people, and what you see is that the only thing that lower-income people eat more of is sugars. And this is not just a scientific issue. This is a, an issue of, of uh, economics. There's a reason why Whole Foods, there is no Whole Foods in West Oakland. A right? whole lot of considerations that, uh, that uh, food companies and the grocery stores have to go through. And as a result of that, you know, if you are a, a working parent, working more than one job, you come back, you get, you're really tired. You can't actually go the extra mile to get good vegetables and cook. And as a result of that, you, saw, you, you see the health consequences. So not surprisingly, lower-income Americans are more obese and suffer all sorts of diseases that higher-income Americans don't. Now, this is, some of these pictures are not from Oakland, but might as well be. Uh, the food desert issue is a massive one, which is that in virtually every inner city in America, they really you cannot get good food. You get instead this kind of stuff, right? So that's, uh, this is an FDA map of Oakland, and there are a number of categorizations of, of food deserts, right? the, the, the yellow and the, the orange and the red. And guess where the McDonald's are, right? It is not surprising that the places where you get Whole Foods is not the places where you get McDonald's. So that's the, that's the one problem about access to nutrition. The other problem is about the environment, which is we produce ridiculous amounts of fertilizer, which unto itself is fertilizer unto itself is, is a very carbon-intensive thing to do. It's also devastating waterways. What we do is we pump all, this, all these, these runoffs into, into our rivers and oceans, and we're killing off sea life. Then um, another problem that nobody in Oakland needs to be reminded of Nobody in California needs to be reminded of, which is water. We'll see how much water it actually takes in just a bit. 
In addition to that, you have, you have pesticides, herbicides, all sorts of things that we do to suck, as I said earlier, more out of the earth than the earth is capable of giving. And then, after we do that, we ship stuff far, far, far away. Not as far as the, the supernovas we're talking about, but certainly from... It does not make sense to grow stuff in California and ship them to Michigan, as good as that is for California's economy. Now, you add all this together, what does that mean? So, if you take the tomatoes, the mighty tomato again, consumed by the city of Oakland. Um, here's how much its footprint is. It is 150 million gallons of water. So all the tomatoes in the city of Oakland in one year. It is, oh, sorry, 9,000 gallons of fuel to transport the stuff and just a ridiculous amount of pesticide and herbicide. So... Let's come back to our question. Is it possible to grow food sustainably, locally, and cost-effectively? Well, when we think of local food, this is what comes to mind. Community gardens. And the problem with community gardens is this. They are well-intentioned, but they often depend on charity. They often depend on subsidies. And so what you see is for every dollar you spend on things like tomatoes in, in typical conventional rural farms, in, uh, if, if that were grown organically in rural areas, it would cost $1.50 or so. If it were grown in community gardens, a lot more, conventional or organic. Right? And so this is why organic uh, farming is, is not uh, financially as sustainable, and community farming is not financially sustainable. And so the question is, how do we then make this more cost-effective? The other part of this equation is that you know, we're solving for the transport problem, but it's not clear that, that uh, local food production is actually environmentally that much more sustainable because who knows how much water is going into it. Sure, usually community gardens tend to not use fertilizers and, and pesticides and so on, but there is no, there's no law against it. And honestly, in a, if these chemicals were used in a city, it would probably do a lot more damage than if, than if it were used in, an, in a rural setting. So now, if you think about the various ways in which food production systems have evolved, historically it's been here. It is just using soil. So the mediums being soil, some sort of a, a substrate, and then you get more and more sophisticated. And we'll talk about some of the more sophisticated systems in a second. And then you have just a regular old outdoor farm. You have greenhouses. And then you have what, is, what, is, what I'd like to call a hyper-controlled environment. Um, so greenhouses have been around and they're getting increasingly sophisticated. And I believe that the really interesting stuff is up there, where you can, you can, you can super control the environment so that instead of the old agricultural systems where we had to, we had to pump stuff into the, into the environment to, to fight off the, the harshness of that environment, all of a sudden, we're making the environment much more conducive to growing. So in other words, imagine food production systems where if it's in a shipping container, where things are pretty well controlled. And we'll, we'll talk about what those controlling mechanisms are. So rather, rather than having a farmer who really has to understand the soil and insects and the rain patterns and so on and so forth, all this stuff sort of gets automated and controlled. Right? A little bit like those cappuccino machines where you know, my cappuccino making skills are no longer relevant, which is very sad because you can press a button and get stuff that's okay. <laughs> so th this is what we're trying to do, precision agriculture. So three systems. The first is hydroponics. Essentially, the idea is that instead of the roots being buried in the soil, 
it's in water, and that water keeps getting circulated. The water has nutrients, and, then, and because of that, because you're reusing that water, you reduce the amount of waste. Okay? Then you have aquaponics, which is much, much more interesting, which is you actually have now, in that water, fish. So, so the fish poop, which my daughters get a kick every time I say that, actually generates nutrients. Obviously, you can add additional nutrients as well, but now you're starting to get sort of a closed-loop system where you don't have to add a whole lot of new stuff. And then you have a, a much more interesting, much more sophisticated mechanism called aeroponics, where you're actually spraying stuff onto the roots, right? Where the roots, as you see, they, I, don't, I don't know if you can see in that picture, but the roots are no longer, they're, just, they're not buried in anything. They're suspended in the air, and you're, you're spraying water, you're spraying nutrients into the roots. Okay? Now, if, you, if these systems are, are used at scale, and already a number of people are starting to do this, um, there's a tremendous saving in terms of water. You know, for some of these things, you can get by with 5% of the water, a lot less of the fertilizer. And because these are now in controlled environments, indoors, in greenhouses and such, you're not exposed to things like pests as much. So you don't need as much pesticides. And a lot of the systems that we're looking at now, they, they use almost zero pesticides. And um, then the challenge now is even these systems, and there are a number of innovators that are, doing, that are gr growing vegetables this way, now, there, many of these, these folks are scientists who've taken off their day jobs and starting to, to become farmers. Even though they're doing really interesting stuff, it's still not financially feasible. For every dollar, again, it's costing them a dollar twenty-five, dollar fifty, And that's a fundamental challenge they're trying to overcome. And that, the reason is that if you look at this greenhouse, a lot has to go into the actual structure. The glass is expensive. It gets dirty. Lighting. There, there's energy costs involved in, in lighting and heating. And then hyper-control. So, for instance, if you go into one of these systems, one of these greenhouses, you have to wear the suit. Otherwise, you're actually bringing in pathogens into the system. And this gets expensive. How do you make this less expensive? Then um, the other problem is that, interestingly, a lot of these folks are not growing tomatoes. They're growing lettuce and greens because these are single cycle. Right? The, 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 if it's a single cycle, you don't have to worry about pests coming in the second and third cycles, whereas tomatoes, on the same plant, you have multiple cycles of fruits. Right? And so they haven't cracked the code on how to grow things like tomatoes yet. Um, and then uh, the, other, the, the, the other thing they're struggling with is that because the science is not yet known, it is all, it's, uh, it's all experimental right now. Right? They're tinkering with this. These are really interesting tinkerers, but nonetheless, they are tinkerers, and they don't know the answer, and sometimes the losses can be devastating. And, and so, that's, so, so that lack of science is actually really hindering the development of these systems. Now, what kinds of things can we do? Turns out, turns out that plants don't need as much sunlight as they get. Some studies show that you can actually do strobes, maybe even three or four seconds out of every minute, and that could be enough for plants. And... What we don't know, again, is uh, there's some early science indicating this, which is you can actually control the wavelength and actually get more out of the plants by give, exposing them to some wavelengths than the other, than others. And again, a lot of research has to be done here. Then you have uh, this notion of a nutrient recipe. Right now, we, just, we, we use a baseball bat to, to, grow, to grow plants. We just throw everything at it, whereas we don't need to give that much or even that right that the same generic mixture of fertilizers, right? So understanding what crops need exactly what and giving them exactly the, the precise amount so that not only are we wasting less, not only are we creating less waste, but the plants are actually better off. Because as you know, you can over-fertilize a plant. Um, 
And, and by the way, uh, what this, this picture isn't clear, but there's actually the possibility that we can use local waste to do that. And the challenge with local waste is that if you, if, if you go into a compost bin, you have no idea, um, you have no idea how, to, how to make that precise. Right? So again, a lot of research has to go into whether or not you can take existing waste and make that more, more precise. And then, um, as I mentioned earlier, there's this, this level of hyper-control where instead of having to expose growth and, and, and your produce to the elements, now you can sort of sit, you know, I, I'm not exaggerating. I'm, I'm willing to bet that 10 years from now, uh, in iPhone version 46, you can actually sort of control how, what kind of light, what kind of humidity, what kind of temperature your plants get every minute, and you get really interesting sensors in the ecosystem that, so that there's this feedback loop. Right? So all of this is quite possible. And then, and then the, other, the other thing that can be done with, with things like greenhouses is, is instead of the traditional glass, can we actually have interesting structures so that now the glass is easier to, it is less resistant to things like, like dirt. Dirt, as you know, includes light. Right? So a number of really fascinating things need to be done, but currently the food production systems don't lend themselves to this kind of research. So we are actively looking into some of these questions. So... Let's go back to the original question. Is sustainable urban food production possible? What do you say? Well, I'm a scientist, so I'll only lie to you when I can prove it with data. So I've only talked about the mighty tomato and the mighty lettuce. What I haven't talked about is the real stuff that really consumes a lot of the resources. Right? So I think we can grow vegetables, but and that can be very sustainable. But at the end of the day, the grains are what consume most of the resources, whether it's water, whether it's fertilizer, pesticide, and so on and so forth. And I must say, I'm scratching my head about a solution for the grains. Vegetables, yes. Grains, maybe. We'll see. Thank you. In fact, we might take a question or two while the votes are being tabulated, so we don't want to keep you folks any later than necessary. So let us start right here. So why is the radiation in Indian Iran so high? Yuan. Oh, I'm on, okay, very, very good question. Uh, it really depends on the, on the environment and the geology of the environment. So they, they are, in these specific areas in India and Iran, they are close to some uranium mines, for example. So they have a lot of uranium and thorium in their, in their environment causing a lot substantially increased background levels of radiation. I actually think that Indians tend to have more skin-to-skin -skin contact. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Bravo. We have, I don't think that has been really proven scientifically yet. We have the population to prove it. <laughs> the density, maybe. <laughs> Part um, Well, it's nature-made anyway, but, but it's, no, it's not man-made. They're the natural mines and, and natural occurrences of, of different geology. Um, so it's, not without, it's really not any impact of humans uh, on, on the creation of the additional uh, radiation. But again, what, and that's a very important point. It doesn't really matter in terms of the impact of radiation, whether it's man-made or really natural. I mean, the radiation is all really the same, whether it's beta, gamma, or alpha, or alpha radiation. So it's, it wouldn't really matter. But in this case, certainly, it's, it's natural. Uh, next one over here. My question is for Mr. Buliswa. 
Is the marijuana industry in Colorado using your techniques, or are they doing, is that what they're doing in those huge warehouses, trying to... The marijuana do? industry has been on the forefront of this, actually, in, in, in many ways. The, the, the difference is that um, from a purely economic competitiveness point of view, it's not, they're not competing against, against a heavily subsidized system um, so, yet. Um, and, and because it's a niche market, because they've actually been able to charge a lot, they haven't had to worry about the economics as much, right? Um, but they have, obviously, because of the, the legal constraints and so on, they've had to be quite innovative. But I, on, I, that's second-hand knowledge. Okay. <laughs> I think her question was the same as mine. Was it about the marijuana industry? Sorry? I think her question yes, that's, was the that's same correct. as mine. That's correct. So since it's my understanding, again, secondhand, that these industries are, for the time being, legal, haven't you thought of partnering with them to fund your research? <laughs> <laughs> what a novel idea. <laughs> we'll take that to the director. As an employee of a federal government lab, I'd have to think carefully about that. <laughs> no, but, but the truth is that no, uh, the, the, a lot of the folks... Uh, doing this actually were very innovative, right? It'd be foolish of us not to not to pick up on that knowledge. So now the question is, uh, again, j just as some of these systems work for single cycle greens versus tomatoes, now part of part of precision agriculture is really understanding the difference between various types of crops, and and marijuana is a weed, right? And, and so and, and and tends to be more hardy. The question is, will those techniques then? Uh, translate to non-weeds like tomatoes and so on. By the way, I'm assuming it's a weed, right? <laughs> yes, it is. Take next one here. My question is for Mr. Say Navarro. Sorry if I'm saying it wrong. First of all, respect on your socks. I don't know if you guys can see this, but his commitment to research, he's got insects on his socks. <laughs> <laughs> so you were talking about uh, your research relating to uh, energy production, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if that is cellulosic biofuels second generation, going from beyond corn to sort of waste materials? You know, uh, at the very beginning when we started with the pasalate beetle, the wood-feeding beetle, we were considering only the possibility of the production of, for example, hydrogen and methane, which are produced in the beetle like in a natural way as it happens in thermites. So what we were trying to do there was to harness specifically these kind of uh, processes. But then over the time, we discovered there that the insect was also, together with the microbes, uh, developed uh, this ability to degrade lignin. So you know that this is a big problem for the production of uh, energy from crops. So then we could also target that part in there. And um, then because of how the system is arranged in the, in the beetle, you could even use the whole uh, uh, train of processes to go directly for hardwoods, which are really abundant. I know that's... Yes, thank okay. you. Yeah. Thanks for the question. This is for Dr. Campisi and Dr. Seha Navajo. Um, we know that insects have proliferated without damaging the earth, and there's how many billions, but if we stop, if we improve human life where we proliferate, what would be the impact on the earth and its resources if we were as successful as insects? Yeah. <laughs> Well, for one, I'd recommend we all be short, so we take. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, one thing I will say that is interesting, that's known by deep demographers, is that when lifespan, when health span and lifespan 
are extended, birth rates fall. And so I personally am less worried about um, overpopulation. I think that helping the health of the earth is going to, in the end, uh, benefit us from not overpopulating the earth. And that, that's a philosophical uh, point of view. As far as insects go, I don't, I don't know, but we're extending, we're, you know, the, the, the world's record for extending lifespan is in a nematode, yeah. the elegans. We can take that little worm, which lives just a couple of weeks, and extend its lifespan tenfold. Yep. I don't think it's had any impact on the soil. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I mean, uh, I don't think we will reach the uh, point of being a, as uh, successful as insects are. And even in, no, seriously, I mean, we are humans and we know our limitations, but, uh, uh, I mean, despite of that, uh, uh, first of all, if we proliferate, I don't think insects will go away at all. They will still find a way to adapt to us, just as roaches did. You know? So they will be always there. I mean, they were here before. They know how to deal with whatever thing we may want to try. Hey, hey sir? Question is for Anne. Uh, I realize that at one point science proved that the Earth is not the center of the universe. Um, I'm curious with the realization of the expanding universe. Mm -hmm. Does this put us once again at the center of the universe? Is it expanding? <laughs> well, so that's the great thing. If we're expanding, everybody's at the center. Right. right? We're all moving away from each other. <laughs> well, that, that's good from our radiation standpoint, we decided, right? So, yeah. <laughs> There's a whole lot of philosophical questions when you start talking about your universe expanding. Mm -hmm. um, but it's expanding from all points at all times, so every one of us is... So, so the way I think about it is ants, we'll come back to the insects, the ants okay. falling on the balloon. So the balloon, it's, it's a 2D analog of a 3D situation, but the ants, if you blow up the balloon, the ants are all moving apart from each other even if they're not moving. Relative. If they're not walking, they're still moving apart from each other. Right. And none of them is at the center of the expansion. But they are expanding. Or, so the ant their itself isn't expanding, but the... Their world is expanding. Their world is expanding. So if you like, we could think of ourselves as ants on the balloon. We're all just gradually drifting apart. <laughs> Some analogies are more palatable than others. <laughs> okay. But that's how I think of it. They're all expanding. Their world is expanding. None of them are at the center of it. Right. Okay. And on that, note, two to three. <laughs> on that note, we thank will you. close. You know, thank you, Oakland. Uh, you guys have been a great audience. And thank you to our public affairs staff. Particularly, I, I need to call out, you don't know this person, but you know there are a lot of people who work behind the scenes. So uh, a woman by the name of Beverly Hill Thomas, who's been working on these for 12 years. This is her final one, so we need to give her a round of applause. You don't know her, but she's great. And thank you to our scientists, of course, uh, for doing such a wonderful job in their presentations. And we'll be in Oakland again. Hope to see you soon. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.